Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. First of all, we have several content warnings for this episode. We're going to be talking about the bus accident that Frida famously experienced and the severe and lasting physical injuries and trauma that resulted from that. We'll also be discussing miscarriage and abortion in some depth. There will also be discussion of sexual encounters between adults and a minor, as well as non-explicit mentions of sex and discussions of political unrest, periotypical misogyny and misogyny and homophobia in the modern sources. So if any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and give one of our other episodes a try. Also, a couple of other things. As you will have noticed, this is part one of two. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) It's the regular story. Frida just did too much with her life. So we're going to talk about her twice. So the first episode is out now and the second episode, so as not to disrupt our normal schedule too much, we're going to bring out as a kind of bonus episode a week from now on the 22nd. This episode will cover... Frida's life from her birth until her return to Mexico from the United States in 1933. And then the next episode, we'll talk about the rest of Frida's life. Also, because of difficulties with talking about Frida's sexuality, particularly her attraction to women, which is why you're all here, (laughs) uh, we're not going to sort of intersperse that discussion like chronologically through her life as we generally do. We're going to discuss basically all the miscellaneous bits of information we have about that at the end and do kind of like an analysis of how her sexuality gets talked about. So in short, there isn't a lot of queer content in this episode, but you know, hopefully this will still be a bit interesting anyway. I also wanted to mention the fact that this episode has been severely, incredibly delayed so much. It was the chosen topic by our patrons who voted on it in a poll so long ago. Uh, and then various <laughs> things happened. You know, I quickly realized that I had bitten off more than I can chew and that Frida just did so much all the time and all of the scholarship was so bad that I couldn't get it together. So we put it off for a little bit and then a global pandemic happened. And because, you know, we wanted to talk about it with Irene because you've talked about Chevella Vargas, yeah. who, who knew Frida and, you know, this is going to be like a juicy history episode. We just put it off. And then we put it off and then we put it off because the pandemic just kept Kept happening. happening. So thank you very much to our patrons for, you know, putting up with that. I hope that you enjoy it now that it's finally here. So I also have to do the obligatory discussion about what our sources are for Frida now. Most of the sources that I read made a point of talking about how difficult it is to know the truth about Frida and they viewed her to some degree as an enigma. They partly blamed this on Frida herself, saying that she lied about herself or at least she like presented different personas or she mythologized herself and things like that. And this is true to an extent. And we're going to talk about examples of her doing these things, but I didn't feel that this being like a marked trait of her personality was demonstrated to me by the sources that I read. And I became increasingly suspicious of this assertion the more I read about her. So is this just a thing that scholars say because they can't get a handle on for you and they're sort of like, she must've or, is it because Frida is saying things that they don't like and they're like, oh no, she made that one up, but like don't fit with their idea of who she is. 
So I think there are several factors to consider about why Frida's life is complicated or Mm. unclear. So first of all, like Frida was famous during her lifetime, which obviously tends to lead to kind of like distorted information about Mm. someone. Like think about how we talk about any random celebrity now. Many of our sources about her also come from other people's memories of her 30, 40 years after she passed away. And there are also instances where scholars represented Frida as being like dishonest or duplicitous when discussing topics that anyone would reasonably have quite a complicated relationship towards so in particular topics related to her body yeah um, such as her fertility or her disabilities and things like that her biographers also freely mine her paintings for biographical information which just seems so fraught to me yeah And I thought they were way too cavalier about doing that. For those various reasons, when you come to learning about Frida, trying to make sense of all of that partially explains why people talk about her like that. But in any case, this understanding of Frida that her biographers perpetuate, that she is essentially unknowable, allowed them to very obviously just be constructing their own versions of who she was while simultaneously disguising that they were doing so. Mm-hmm. And it's also worth noting that many of her biographers mentioned feeling some kind of personal connection to Frida or having a unique insight into who Frida was. So Martha Zamora, for example, recalled the effect that passing Frida on the street once as a child in Mexico had on her. And Frida's most prominent biographer, Hayden Herrera, stated in an interview, with Frida, I felt for a time that I I was living inside her. I felt that I was writing about her from the inside out. And this rhetoric that, you know, Frida is largely a mystery, but that each author who writes about her happens to have a unique insight into her seemed very questionable to me. I think it's inevitable that if you, like, write a biography of someone, you're going to feel, like, a connection with them. But I think you have to kind of acknowledge that that doesn't mean you know anything extra about them or have some, like, intimate understanding of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see, I mean, Hayden Herrera wrote an enormous book. I can see why at the end it would be like, I feel like I'm, Mm. you know, as within Frida as you can possibly be. Mm. But, yeah, it's easy to sort of extend that too far and be like, I have a deeper understanding of this than anyone else could. Yeah. So I also just wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about Hayden Herrera because she is such an important biographer of Frida and we are going to be, you know, really referring to Herrera's work more than anything throughout these two episodes. So Hayden Herrera's 1983 biography, Frida, a biography of Frida Kahlo, is viewed as the authoritative biography and it's generally very well regarded. The book played a significant role in bringing Frida back into the public consciousness outside of Mexico and it's been very influential in forming both academic and mainstream understandings of Frida's life and art. Herrera, as you said, wrote a giant book. It's very thorough, way more thorough than most other biographies that I read, or really any of them at all. And she did a lot of primary research that greatly added to the available information about Frida, using things like private interviews that she conducted or documents that are in her possession or are in like archives or private holdings or whatever. This often makes her sources impossible to follow to any degree. And this is unfortunate because I found Herrera's biography to be very flawed. There are a lot of reasons for this. I don't want to go into it too in-depth for time reasons. She would do things like make very provocative statements and not offer really any source or justification for it at all. You know, her book is full of leaps of logic that I felt were unsupported and were often based on her understanding of Frida's emotional state 
when painting a particular painting and things like yeah. that. She would often paraphrase things in such a way where it was unclear what was her opinion and what she was drawing from an interview mm. that she had conducted. And she would also like place statements next to each other to suggest but not outright claim a connection between them. Yeah. But when you look at where those sources come from, they're from like – you know, completely different people and different times and things like that. Maybe those things do have a connection if I had the full sources, but she hasn't demonstrated that to me and I can't look at interviews that are in her possession only. Yeah. You know, so overall, the more deeply I looked into Herrera's biography, the less I felt I knew. And partly due to the huge amount of information about Frida and the inaccessibility of primary sources, I still have a lot of unanswered questions about Frida. Like, I'm just going to be upfront about that now. Yeah. A lot of the work of trying to learn about Frida, and I don't think just for me, like I think looking at other biographers Mm. as well, is wrestling with biographies, you know, wrestling with Herrera's work and so Mm. forth. And like that's a lot of what we're going to be doing here today. I also wanted to give some context into what was going on in Mexico at the time that Frida was born, because it's very important to like who she was and the forces driving her life and whatnot. Frida grew up during the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920. The revolution overthrew General Porfirio Diaz, who had been president for a total of 31 years at that point and refused to step down from power in 1910. The revolution was therefore in reaction to his dictatorship specifically, but also to various social problems typified by his government, including oppression of Mexico's indigenous and peasant classes. The 10-year period of the revolution was socially, politically, and economically chaotic, as revolutions tend to be. The country saw 10 different presidents often coming to power through the violent overthrow of the previous administration until the election of Alvaro Obregón in 1920, which brought, like, relative stability. So that's literally just president a year for 10 years. Some of them did not last a year. But, (laughs) like, on average, sure, yes. Nevertheless, the country is faced with the huge task of rebuilding much of its bureaucratic infrastructure and establishing national unity and economic stability, and those problems, as you can imagine, would continue on into the 1930s. Mexico's national identity also radically reformulated. So Mexico, as... I assume we all know, had been conquered by the Spanish in 1521, and although it had gained its independence in 1821, at the turn of the 20th century, European culture was still highly prized among Mexico's upper classes. After the revolution, there was a push to connect instead with the country's indigenous roots as a way of formulating a uniquely and specifically Mexican identity. And this is the part that is most relevant to what we're talking about yeah. today and was very relevant to Frida's life. We'll discuss that more as we talk about like her art and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frida was born on July 6, 1907, and named Magdalena Carmen Frida Carlo y Calderon, although her family called her Frida, and we will call her Frida. <laughs> Despite being born in 1907, she often said that she was born in 1910, including in her own diary. And the reason biographers generally give for this is that it made her birth coincide with the year that the Mexican Revolution began. Okay. The revolution and associated nationalism and cultural reconstruction were very important to Frida, as we will yeah. continue to discuss. It's interesting that she lied in her own diary. Like, that obviously means that she's writing her diary with kind of some sense of a future public perhaps reading it. I don't think that's true. I think that, like, lies like that that people tell about themselves are them expressing a very deeply held part of their identity, and I don't think you need to stop expressing that in private. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Like, I, I assume that most people don't think their diaries will be read in the future, and I assume most people lie in their diary to some extent, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah, like, even to yourself, like, people do kind of construct yeah, identities sure. and things like that. How do we know she was born in 1907, though? We have her birth certificate. Okay, cool. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. I was just mildly concerned that we wouldn't yeah. know. And, like, we know as well, like, what year she was done in school and things like uh, that. Yeah, okay. And, like, you know, obviously when tell. she's, like, 40, a three-year difference doesn't make that much difference yeah. to where she is in her life but when she's like a kid we know that yeah. she didn't start school at two years old yeah yeah, yeah. so that seems pretty clear okay no, <laughs> that's, that's, fine. that's good that's fine. frida grew up in la casa azul which was a blue house built three years earlier by her father and which is today the frida Kahlo museum ah i never knew if the house that was like the blue house like the frida Kahlo museum was like her childhood home or her like adult home or like what it's both like she will oh, live okay. there as an adult as well okay confusingly she does briefly live in like a different blue house <laughs> <laughs> maybe buy some more paint frida. so there was a point where i was like wait what <laughs> <laughs> the house was in koyuakan which is a village that gradually came to being incorporated into mexico city over the 20th century so like the vibe kind of shifts from being relatively rural to suburban mm, yeah. over the course of the 20th century. Frida had a younger sister, Christina, and two older sisters, Adriana and Matilda, and two half-sisters from their father's previous marriage, Maria Luisa and Margarita. Just all sisters? Just all sisters, all yeah. Right. Her two half-sisters were raised in a convent. I think, like, once her father's first wife passed away and he remarried, he put the children in the convent so they're not around as much as her other sisters but like she still knows them yeah i believe yeah. frida's father was wilhelm carlo who had been born and raised in germany though his parents were hungarian and who had immigrated to mexico when he was 19 changing his name to guillermo her mother was matilda calderon who was a mexican woman and her own mother was the daughter of a spanish general and her father was a photographer of indigenous descent through matilda's father guillermo became a successful photographer he was commissioned by the government to document Mexico's indigenous and colonial architectural history and the family was pretty successful for a while although when the revolution came they did suffer financially and then like after the revolution as well okay their mm-hmm. finances were affected by that Frida's mother Matilda was a devoutly religious woman and a meticulous housekeeper who tried to instill these values in her daughters she passed on domestic skills to Frida without much issue but was less successful at passing on her religious devotion Frida remembers her and her sister Christina like looking at each other across the the table while the family was praying before meals and just trying not to laugh. <laughs> I take it she was Catholic? Yes, yeah, yes, sorry. Joking. I should have maybe clarified that, but yes, they are yeah. Catholic. Okay. Frida loved her mother, but they had quite an ambivalent relationship, and Frida remembered her as strict and sometimes even cruel. She was closer with her father, however. Guillermo was a very solemn, taciturn man. He wasn't given to, like, displays of affection or anything like that, but Frida was his favourite, and he was very attentive to her. They would go to the park together, where Guillermo painted watercolours as a hobby, and he later taught her to develop retouch and colour photographs. Herrera sees the influences of her father in Frida's precise, detailed brushwork later in life in her own paintings. Are there still Guillermo's paintings available? I don't know of any, but I also didn't look into Guillermo that much. Okay, that's fair. Um, fair. I was just wondering if Herrera is like, I see the influence here. Is she looking at like visual similarity or is she just like this reminds me of... 
Yeah, I, so I was unclear there. I apologize. I actually mean the influence from his photographs rather oh, than of okay. his own artwork. So, like as we've alluded to, the process of like developing and coloring yeah. photographs is like a very like fiddly, precise thing. Yeah, which we know that he taught to her. And there are paintings of Frida's where she does directly copy a photograph that her father took oh, into okay. the picture. So she has one. I can't remember what it's called. But, like, it's of her and her family and the picture of her mother and her father is, like, a copy of, like, their wedding portrait and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, I thought that was a reasonable statement for Herrera to make. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Irene's just, like, on it. When Frida was six, she contracted polio and she spent nine months confined to her room. Although she recovered, her gait was permanently affected and her right leg was always thinner than her left. When she returned to school, she was bullied by the other children for this as well. To help her recover her strength and mobility, she was encouraged by her father to take up sports, and she tried soccer, boxing, wrestling, and swimming, which was quite unusual for a girl at the time. He seems like a good dad. Yeah, he seems like generally a good man. I understand he was like a bit troubled and he had health issues as well, which meant that he wasn't necessarily like very close with his children or like really there for them all the time. But like, nevertheless, Frida thought quite highly of him and loved him very much. So most of Frida's biographers, including Hayden Herrera, say virtually nothing about Frida's early schooling. Ginita and Corey tells us that as a child, Frida and her sister Christina went to the local kindergarten and public primary school. They were then homeschooled for two years when Frida was in the fifth and sixth grades. And Frida alone then attended a German school, but was expelled for disobedience in less than a year. Okay. Because her mother wanted her to be a teacher, she was then enrolled in a vocational teacher school in Mexico City. So this is when she's in her, like, early teens, mid-teens? Yeah, so she'd be, like, about 14 while she's at the teacher school. Do we know anything more about this expelled for disobedience situation? No. Okay. I have told you everything I know about her early schooling up to the point she goes to the teacher's school. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Literally all of it. Sure. I do know that she was quite a, like, mischievous child and, you know, would play, like, practical jokes and stuff like that. So potentially in the quite, like, strict, rigid environment of a school, like, Mm. you know, Frida just being a kid was unacceptable. Yeah. (laughs) While she was at the teacher's school, Frida fell in love with her gym teacher, Sarah Zanil. Okay, there is some queer content here. Our only source for this appears to be an interview that Frida did with her friend Olga Campus. Olga met Frida when she was studying to be a psychologist in 1947, Olga to be Mm. clear, and interviewed Frida extensively for a book she was writing about the creative process between 1949 and 1950. I don't know what happened to this project, but I do know that this interview was only published in 2008, so I assume that the book just didn't work out. Yeah. In the interview, Frida says, when I entered sports class, Senorita Sarah Zanil examined me and told me that because I had had polio, I could not do the exercises, and I began to withdraw from the other children. I fell in love with her. She was very affectionate. She would sit me up in her lap, and during the gym hour, I would go to her room to help her note the names of the other children and their physical examinations. Okay. I don't know. Just like the fact that she would like sit her in her lap. I'm like, I would be like, that seems like a normal thing to do if the child who can't participate in sport is five years old. Mm. Yeah. At 14, um, I have questions. Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, that could be down to, like, a differing set of norms. Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. Between, like, what is considered okay now for... Teachers to do. Uh, yeah. And, like, early teen child and what is mm. considered okay then. Yeah, um, that's fair. There could also be, like, a certain amount of infantilizing a Frida because she had a disability. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which obviously isn't, like, good, but... 
It could but, be a factor. Yeah, it could read differently. Elsewhere, Frida talks about her classmates also having crushes on Sarah. So she Sarah says, was just like the hot gym teacher. Sarah, yeah, appears to have been that teacher that, <laughs> yeah, that, that everyone teacher. has a crush on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she says, the three of us were in love with her and we were jealous of one another. I remember her skin and her perfume. Now I acknowledge that it was very corny. So Anquari tells us that Frida, quote, had an affair with Sarah. She doesn't give a citation for this. And I'm going to kind of put a pin in that and we'll come back to that later when I talk about some other information that will come up. Sorry, who was it that tells us that she had an so affair? So one of Frida's biographers, oh, okay. Guinea Ankhori, is basically the only one who talks about Frida's early schooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she talks about this supposed affair with Sarah. Yeah. Um, I think the reason why she's the only one who talks about it is because she's the only biographer I read whose biography was published after this 2008 interview was oh, published. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Grimberg, who's the editor of the book the interview appears in, mm. merely tells us that Frida's mother discovered incriminating letters to Sarah and consequently took Frida out of school. Frida's own account in Grimberg, so like the interview with yeah. Olga Campus, doesn't have any mention of letters in it. It doesn't have any mention of any kind of reciprocated affection mm. from Sarah that would constitute an affair. But it does state, they took me out of teacher school because of my infatuation with Professor Zanil. Okay. Okay. I mean, it could be that like, you know, if we're talking about letters, even letters don't suggest reciprocation. Like Frida could be writing these letters to Sarah. Yeah, and, and it, like, it does note that it was incriminating letters from Frida. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit less alarming than if they were from Sarah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Like, even if Frida had never sent the letters, like, we also know that her mother was very religious. Yes. And I can definitely see that sitting, you know, not mm. right with her, seeing, like, infatuated same-sex attraction. Yeah. Mm. It's the early 1920s. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I realise that's, like, a bit vague. As I said, we will come back to it in a minute. Mm-hmm. But for now, that is the situation with Frida and her gym teacher. She gets taken out of the school, and in 1922, Frida enters the National Preparatory School in Mexico City. This is the best school in Mexico, and it typifies the air of reformation, nationalism, and pride in Indigenous heritage of Mexico at the time. Frida started a five-year program of study, after which she intended to enter medical school. Oh, okay. She was also exposed to contemporary political thought and the growing interest in Mexican history, customs, folk art, and music, as well as communist ideology, philosophy, and world literature at the school. Okay. So this is like a university, or is it... Like, unclear, to be honest. She's, um, like, late teens? She's 15. Oh, okay. okay. But she's entered a five-year program. So I'm yeah. not sure if this is a normal age for someone to start, like, this stage of school or if people or if- enter it at different ages yeah. or whatever. I just know she's about 15 and she's meant to start it there for five years. Okay. That's sufficient, I guess. Yes. It was just like when you started saying this, it was like she went to the National Preparatory School. And I was like, it seems weird that that's the... You know, the backup option after she gets taken out of this vocational college for having a gay crush. Yeah, I was very sort of confused by this as well. When you read Herrera's biography or, like, other biographies that don't really talk about her other schooling, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, she's starting school and she's, like, a pretty smart girl, so they put her into this, like, really good school. But then you look at her, like, patchwork of previous schooling and it's just Mm -hmm. kind of like, what is the situation here? Yeah. And, like, I don't have any answers for you. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Like, there could be financial reasons that this is messy. It could be like her mother wants her to have a career that her mother considers respectable for a girl yeah. whereas she has other interests and finally like she won uh, yeah. you know because like Frida going into medical school is not like a normal thing for a woman to be doing at the time yeah. so I don't know 
There are certainly some plausible things that could be happening. <laughs> yeah, okay. Girls had only recently begun to be admitted to the school. Of about 2,000 students, Frida was one of 35 girls. Yikes. The girls were expected to be on the top floor patio when they weren't in class, monitored by the girls' prefect, but she was rarely seen there. <laughs> She got pretty good grades and she wasn't afraid to skip or criticize classes that she thought weren't taught well enough. Okay. She became friends with a group of seven boys and two girls, like including her, called the Kachuchas, which referred to the red crocheted caps that they wore. The members of the group all went on to become notable in their fields. So for example, Frida was dating the leader of the group, Alejandro Gomez Arias, behind her parents' back as well, because this was unacceptable. Is that just unacceptable for her to like be dating someone at this time in her life? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And he went on to become a respected intellectual lawyer and political journalist. So. Okay. Good on him. Yeah, good on him. Were they like a high achieving group or is yes. just the school a high achieving oh, school? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Probably it's a bit of both. Okay. Like, obviously not all 2,000 of these people became like highly respected yeah. philosophers or whatever. But yeah, it is like a very intensely academic school where like Mexico's best young minds are and so forth. Yeah. So certainly it's probably got a higher rate of churning out these people than like my high school did. Yeah. <laughs> Although they weren't aligned closely with any specific political ideology, the group was political and it was generally sort of like socialist and nationalist yeah, in yeah. that mm-hmm. sort of area. They spent a lot of time in the library and they were all very voracious readers. Frida learned to read in English and German during this time. I'm just cool. picturing just like this seven nerdy friendship group that have in given their sons a name and their matching red hats just like pouring over books in the library. I feel like they're kind of mischaracterizing them. So they're <laughs> like a very deeply irreverent group of people. They're habitual pranksters as well so once okay. they were a donkey through the halls of the school. <laughs> okay, so they're not like a nerdy friendship no, group. No, no. They're, they're just, just like, a- Friendship group that yeah. likes to read, but also likes to... Yeah. Well, they're, you know, they're intellectual. <laughs> yeah. They're intellectual, fellas. They're probably obnoxious. They're, I'm sure they were, yeah. yeah. Their most famous prank targeted Antonio Caso, who was a philosopher who taught at the school and who they didn't like because they thought he was too conservative. They didn't like that he would avoid discussing Marx and Engels in his lectures. <laughs> <Yes>. Unacceptable. <laughs> so they put a firecracker outside the window of a lecture he was giving and it exploded and broke the windows behind him. <laughs> Showering him with glass. Oh, wow. Okay. And he just brushed it off his lapels and he kept lecturing. (laughs) Frankly, an impressive man then. Yeah. But he should have talked about Marx more, I guess. Yeah. Do you think they were just like at the back of his lectures heckling? Like every time they thought Marx was relevant, they were at the back being like, what about Marx? I mean, presumably. That's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of teenager Frida was. Even if she didn't do that, like that would have been in character. So Frida worked various jobs during vacations and after school to help supplement her family's income. In January of 1925, she wrote to Alejandro about a job she was excited to apply for at the Library of the Ministry of Education. According to an interview that Herrera conducted with Alejandro, Frida was seduced by a female employee of the ministry who she met while applying for the job. When you say she was seduced by an employee, do you have any, like, details about that age difference or that, like, we know anything? Take a guess. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) So Um, it, like, may be inappropriate, but maybe they're, like, 21 and 17 or something and it's not. Yeah, like, obviously there's varying levels of how bad this situation could be. Herrera says little else about this incident except that, quote, 
It is probably to this incident that Frida referred when, in 1938, she told a friend that her initiation into homosexual sex by one of her school teachers had been traumatic, especially so because her parents discovered the liaison and a scandal ensued. By one of her school, school teachers? Th- yeah. So to me, it seems more likely that that quote refers to the incident with Sarah Zanil. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Sarah was actually a school teacher. Now, just to reiterate, because Grimberg and uh, Grimberg's book containing yeah. an interview with Olga Campus is our only source on the situation with Sarah, and that book came out in 2008, it would seem that Herrera, whose book came out in 1983, was unaware of that and therefore thought that it must have referred to this incident with the woman at the Ministry yeah. of Education. Yeah. So Herrera's just trying to make sense of the information available yeah. to her, not knowing what's missing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and like I think that's reasonable to assume given the information that I understand was available to her. Yeah. 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 Nothing else I read explicitly picked up on this discrepancy, but it's possible that this is what Anquari did, and this is the source of her statement that Frida had an affair with Sarah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, she doesn't say that. She doesn't point to this quote or mention it at all. It would be nice if people did did that that, rather than just making claims. Like, there's no point making a true claim if you don't back it up. It may as well be a false claim then. Yeah. So, like, that's all a bit of a mess. I'm unsure what to conclude about all of this, to be honest, and it's frustrating that these two incidences are so unclear. The only direct quote that Herrera gives from that interview with Frida's friend is the word school teachers. Literally that one word. Just like that in quotation marks in a sentence. Yes. Okay. Okay. And the statement Herrera made about that interview was that Frida was talking about her first introduction to homosexual sex. Yeah, so I'll read you the quote again that Herrera gives. So this is from Herrera, to be clear, not from the interview. It is probably to this incident that Frida referred when in 1938 she told a friend that her initiation into homosexual sex by one of her, quote, school teachers, end quote, had been traumatic. I see what you mean when you were like, she paraphrases quotes so that it's unclear, like, what parts are Frida's actual words and what are not. Yeah, so to be clear, there is Herrera interpreting someone's words that they said 40 years after Frida said something to them. Yeah. And not to be too cynical about Herrera. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) But... If you're picking out select words from mm, a quote yeah. rather than giving the original quote, even an abridged version of the original quote, why? Why? Yeah, why yeah. that one word? Yeah. yeah, what aren't you telling me? Like, at best, you're a bad writer. Yeah. Like a bad biographer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at worst, um, you're deliberately hiding or yeah. obfuscating something. Yes. Yeah. And also, for what it's worth, so I'd mentioned that Alejandro is our source for the relationship or sexual encounter mm. or whatever she had with this worker from the Ministry of Education. There is no quote from Alejandro at all, like no direct quote. Okay, so it's yeah. just like, hey, Alejandro said this. Said this, yeah. And like, I know, for example, I've come across this when I've been doing other episodes that kind of encounter this problem where a lot of the sources are private interviews done by a biographer yeah. that we don't have access to. I think I remember this with Alice Anderson, for example, where the biographer said, look, her family told me these facts about her relationships with women, but I cannot put direct quotes because they wouldn't tell me that while I was recording. They refused to have that like Mm. physically recorded. So like you do encounter things like that. Yeah. We'll have to sort of leave part of this discussion for the second episode where I talk more about how generally Herrera Mm talks about Frida's sexual encounters with women. But yeah, like Herrera at no point is as upfront as that when she discusses why she talks about things like this or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to note a couple of other things that have potential implications for this situation. The interview that Herrera conducted with Frida's friend, from which we get Frida's statement that her introduction to homosexual sex was traumatic. (laughs) 
this. I'm do so you, sorry. Do you feel like you're reading that book? Like, what is it? Like, House that the House yes, that I, built. <laughs> I tried to make this as clear as possible. It was just such a nightmare. So um, this is the historiography that Jack built. Yes. Anyway, that interview happened sometime between 1978 and 1982. So at least 40 years after she said it. Yeah. Yeah. Even if that is an accurate reflection of Frida's statements, depending on which experience she's referring to, Sarah's relationship to Frida could have been innocent or it could have been abusive. It also seems possible that Frida merely said that her first same-sex crush had ended in a traumatic experience when her parents found out about it, and Mm. the sexual element was introduced either by her friend misremembering or Herrera conflating it with the incident with the Ministry of Education employee. Yeah. 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 Like, the phrase, her first initiation into homosexual sex, I I feel like if Frida, for example, or Frida's friend said like her first homosexual experience, yeah. you could interpret that as her first sexual yeah. experience yeah. or her first experience of being like, oh, I'm attracted to women. Mm. And like, obviously I'm trying to find a more generous reading of that than this gym teacher abused Frida when she was 14. Yeah. Like, I do think that's a reasonable possibility mm. on the basis of that, but I'm not saying that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know, but yeah. Herrera won't allow me to know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's fair. Like, I think there's definitely a reading of that where she had a relationship with Sarah, the gym teacher, and there are also just readings where she had a crush on Sarah, the gym teacher. Her parents found out she got taken out of the school, and it was a – like, that's a big thing to happen to you when you're 14. Yeah. That's that's traumatic, yeah. Also, according to Alejandro, Frida did have sex with a Ministry of Education worker. Mm -hmm. Like – I don't have the interview in front of me, but that seems more unambiguous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is pretty clearly inappropriate, but yeah, depending on how we read the 1938 quote, Frida could have viewed this as traumatic Mm. or we could have no idea. You know, she could have viewed it as neutral or positive. We don't know. Yeah. Frida's other biographers say very little about the incident with the Ministry of Education employee. Zamora describes it thus, Frida enjoyed flouting the rules, whether by a small transgression like wearing bobby socks prohibited by the school dress code, (laughs) or by a deviation as extreme as a sexual adventure with an older woman. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was just like, okay. That was two interesting things things that you've connected. (laughs) I mean, I would believe both of these things about Frida. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, I'm not, that's not the point. I'm not <laughs> saying these things are false. I'm saying those are some weird things just put in the one sentence. This teen really does flout the rules. <laughs> like, Herrera's tone is generally more negative when she talks about this ministry employee, which seems appropriate, but it is worth noting her double standards. Later in 1925, so the same year that yeah. this happened. So how old is Frida at this point? She's like 17. 17. Yeah. Actually, you know, no, I know what month this happened. So she is 17. Yeah. Okay. All right. She has not yet had her 18th birthday. But later in that year, so I think when she had had her 18th birthday, Frida started a paid apprenticeship with a commercial painter and friend of her father's, Fernando Fernandez. Fernandez had her copy prints by the Swedish impressionist Anders Zorn, and he described her as having enormous talent. According to Alejandro, Frida also had a brief affair with Fernando, and Herrera shows no sign of concern at this, and instead launches into a paragraph about how Frida is no longer a girl, but, quote, now a modern young woman defiant of conventional morality. I don't know whether Herrera is homophobic or whether... She was just like, well, she's crossed the 18th birthday, so this is fine now. You do see that view sometimes where people are like, it's not about preventing a relationship with a big power imbalance and age gap. 
It's about have you passed that line? Yeah. Yeah. Like you do see that view, but also I suspect Herrera is homophobic. Having read like the rest of the book, Herrera certainly is a bit homophobic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, And I mean, you know, it is possible as well that like from the context of the full interview she did with Alejandro, like he conveyed that one of these experiences was negative and one was positive. Yeah, yeah. and I guess... I don't know that, though. <laughs> Herrera believes, based on that quote that she had about the school teacher, that the relationship that Frida had with the Minister of Education employee was traumatic for Frida. So obviously Herrera went mm. into thinking about that relationship with a more negative angle yeah. than yeah. where you do knowing about Sarah Zanil as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's also worth noting that like Alejandro, as far as I know, isn't like overtly homophobic but he you know was talking about when he was a teenager in like the 1920s yeah and if he was thinking about an experience Frida had with a man and with a woman he might just be more negative about the one with the woman yeah because that seems more not wholesome or more serious or whatever to him yeah yeah Mm. we're going to move on to talking about one of the most famous events in Frida's life, which is the bus accident. On September 17th, 1925, Frida and Alejandro got on a bus in Mexico City, and while they were traveling on the bus, a trolley car crashed into it. So the bus was hit in the middle with the tram perpendicular to it, and Alejandro described it as if the bus bent for a minute with like remarkable elasticity, and then it just burst and snapped into a thousand pieces. Alejandro had fairly minor wounds. He was able to get up and look for Frida, after the mm-hmm. crash was over. Frida suffered far worse injuries, and when Alejandro found her, she had been pierced through the abdomen with a metal rail. Oh. Alejandro remembers of the event, something strange had happened. Frida was totally nude. The collision had unfastened her clothes. Someone on the bus, probably a house painter, had been carrying a packet of powdered gold. This package broke, and the gold fell all over the bleeding body of Frida. Did that really happen? I Is that just symbolic? Like I assume it did happen. It's very weird because like people are really fixated on this part of her life and on this incident. Mm. Part of that is because she does depict pain and suffering yeah. and injury in her painting so much after this. And this is such a kind of like image that just seems designed to base an artistic tableau around, mm. but it does feel quite suspicious. Mm. And like we watched the movie Frida and like they do, you know, put a lot of effort into this shot of her yeah. injured, covered in blood and covered in gold. Did she herself paint this incident? Frida never painted her accident. Okay. Yeah. We don't know why. She also didn't like really talk about it a lot that I'm aware of. But like Herrera speculates and I think it's reasonable to conclude that mm. she it was just too much for her to kind of confront in yeah. art or to talk about very often. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. yeah. So she never mentions this, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. 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 I assume it did happen. Like Alejandro was there yeah. and although I'm sure he could have misremembered the chain of events a bit, this seems like a hell of a thing to like to either just- deliberately or accidentally make up yeah like it sounds very dramatic but sometimes very dramatic things happen so it's also like not that hard to picture that her clothes were torn yeah even if she wasn't like completely nude like it's not that hard to picture that her clothes were torn and it was like bare skin and blood and gold paint right yeah 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 Yeah. but yeah just given how she goes on to process her accident through paintings and the weird intense way that people kind of fetishize her Hmm depiction of pain and Mm -hmm. its relationship with her art is just such a wild thing to have occurred yeah 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 and that's sort of all i have to say about that yeah it's also sort of hard to say because i have no idea what alejandro was like as a person like you know there are some 
people and if you read the whole interview you can kind of see you're like you're saying things which are metaphors Mm -hmm. in the same way that you say things which strictly happened yeah and some people are not like that i mean that's possible my sort of sense for alejandro's personality doesn't really lend itself to that but i obviously couldn't read the interview yeah and you know i i haven't read like extended work by him either so i can't say that conclusively once alejandro found her he picked her up and he placed her on a billiards table in a nearby bar or cafe of some sort a man came and saw the metal bar piercing Frida, like just a random man, Mm. and decided that it needed to be removed. And so he put his knee on her. Oh no. And he pulled it out. Alejandro says that she screamed so loudly that when the ambulance came, he couldn't hear the siren. Mm -hmm. And he thought that she was going to die. Originally, the paramedics left Frida for dead. They weren't going to prioritize treating Mm. her because they thought there's just no point but he made them take her to the hospital as soon as possible and so she was taken to the hospital and obviously she had to go into surgery reports of Freda's specific injuries vary but they include a broken spine and pelvis, fractures or breaks in several ribs, a broken collarbone and fractures or breaks in her right hand. Mm -hmm. Her right foot was also crushed and her right leg broken so that's the same one that had suffered from polio. For the first month Freda lay on her back in a to cast in hospital and it wasn't certain if she would survive although she did begin to recover complications from the accident would last for her entire life mm-hmm. her spine in particular never really healed correctly and she had ongoing issues with blood flow to her right leg one of her sisters matilda lived nearby and she came at once otherwise her family didn't immediately visit her in hospital apparently her parents were too shocked and grieved to do so and so you know her mother apparently didn't speak for a month and her father Mm -hmm. was too ill in response to this to visit her until 20 days after the accident Mm. i mean i'm glad matilda was there then Yeah. yeah her friends did visit her in hospital but once she was released these visits became much less frequent, partly because it was about an hour's travel from Mexico City to her home I, in Coyoacan, yeah. and Frida clearly felt terribly isolated during the months of her recovery. By November, she was able to sit in an armchair. Three months after the accident, on December the 18th, she was able to travel into Mexico City. Frida had missed her final exams, and she didn't register for classes. She would never go back to school, and instead she started working part-time jobs to help her family financially due to her huge medical expenses. By late summer of 1926, Frida had relapsed and she was ill enough to once again be confined to her home. Three vertebrae in her spine were out of place and she had to remain immobile for months, confined to plaster corsets. The treatments that she went through to address her injuries, such as the corsets, were often themselves very painful and often seemed to not really work Mm. yeah this was the first of many such relapses and frida would be caught in the cycle of recovery and relapse for the rest of her life and it's during this time that frida begins to paint her mother commissioned a special easel for her so she could paint from her bed and she would also have like a mirror above her so she could see her own face oh yeah so she can do painted a lot of her self-portraits yeah although they do show promise her early paintings her most notable early painting is her first self-portrait which is called self-portrait in a velvet dress her most notable painting is is herself in a red velvet dress (laughs) (laughs) and it was a gift for alejandro so is she still like seeing alejandro at the moment yes okay 
yeah, they they actually do kind of quarrel a bit during this time for reasons I can't be bothered getting into. Uh-huh. But like, yeah, they're still together. Okay. okay. Frida's primary influences at this time are clearly European. She refers to herself as your Botticelli in reference to this painting, and she's clearly influenced by Italian Renaissance painters. Herrera also sees the influence of other European art movements, such as the Pre-Raphaelites and the Art Nouveau movement. I couldn't possibly okay. comment. <laughs> so as mentioned, Mexico was undergoing great cultural change, and many artists were turning away from European influences to Mexican styles and themes. As she developed as a painter, Frida did the same, and Mexican heritage imagery are common themes in her work. Her second self-portrait is a marked contrast to her first self-portrait. So in this one, she's wearing a Mexican-style blouse, and her jewellery indicates her mixed Indigenous and Spanish heritage. So she's wearing, like, colonial-style earrings, but a pre-Columbian jade necklace. Oh, okay. Frida's paintings also, over time, come to mimic retablos, which are Mexican votive paintings. They're generally quite small, and they're painted on, like, small pieces of metal and they recorded or commemorated a disaster that the person had survived and they're like thanking the saint Mm. or the virgin mary or jesus for their help in saving the person from that particular calamity so is it like you would make one of these yourself or you would commission Uh, it i think i think more typically like a sort of ordinary person would get someone to make one for them because most people aren't very good at painting yeah (laughs) Uh, but you know like frida can paint yeah so they're like depict the scene that's been averted and they'll depict the saint and then there'll be like an inscription describing the event Mm -hmm. Um, and so many of her paintings share this composition and there's times as well where she'll have like the inscription like panel sort of thing but it will be blank Um, Mm -hmm. so potentially depicting the fact that this particular crisis was not averted oh okay things like that so she plays with that particular like mexican art style really interestingly does she put the saints in her no well sort of like there'll be kind of like a figure where a saint might be oh yeah but it's not like this is frida's painting of the virgin mary yeah yeah Yeah. okay so it's like the composition rather than the direct yeah things that make up a traditional retable Mm -hmm. and her paintings will also have other influences from like catholic or christian imagery so she'll have thorns indicating suffering and she'll have imagery that's reminiscent of pictures of the virgin mary holding the baby jesus i I believe that has a name but i don't know what it is (laughs) you know like that yeah i think you usually just call it like madonna and child okay yeah yeah, that's what i'm trying to say Yeah. yeah she'll have like madonna and child compositions so she has one for an example where she herself is the baby uh, so it's a baby, but it has an adult Frida's head, and she is <laughs> suckling from her wet nurse. So Frida had, like, in real life, an Indigenous wet nurse, mm-hmm. and she found this really important. Like, she used this as a very potent symbol for her connection to Mexico. You know, mm-hmm. she was literally, like, nourished by this heritage and so forth. Yeah. And in the painting, the woman's face has been replaced with, like, a stone mask from pre-Columbian mexican indigenous culture Mm -hmm. so we could analyze that more but you know like that gives you an idea of the general sort of imagery Mm. marrying both the like catholic imagery that the spanish brought and then Mm. also like traditional indigenous mexican imagery yeah by late 1927 frida had largely recovered and she reconnected with her school friends during her illness frida had written to alejandro very often she begged him to visit her but he didn't write or visit as often as she would have liked Mm -hmm. uh in march of 1927 alejandro went to europe Mm -hmm. he didn't tell her he was going until he'd already left and he didn't come back until november okay alejandro not good behavior no it's really not yeah like they kind of like quarrel on and off during this period and 
And I think the kind of sense of his actions there are genuinely him, like, kind of trying to save her pain by not having mm. some, like, drawn-out separation. But obviously it's also just, like, yeah. it's not actually a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it was, like, willfully cruel. Oh, yeah. yeah. He so, was like, you know, if I just tell her once I'm in Europe, it'll be fine yeah. and then she'll be able to move on or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, initially as well, I think he intends to be there for, like, a couple of months and then oh, it yeah. continues and he, yeah. he doesn't come back until the end of the year. And after this point, the relationship kind of ends gradually, but they do break up. Yeah. Frida became part of a group of student activists and communists. This included the Italian-American photographer, model, and activist Tina Madotti, with whom Frida became close, and also the famous painter Diego Rivera. Diego is going to be quite an important person. <laughs> In Frida's life. <laughs> so we're just going to give a bit of background into who Diego was and kind of where he falls into the artistic movements of the time. Diego had been born in 1887, so he's now 41, mm-hmm. and he was one of the most famous artists in Mexico. He'd been drawing since childhood. His father, to support this, had given him a blackboard-lined room when he was a little kid. Oh, cute. That's like <laughs> yeah. the dream when you're a kid. It is, yeah. yeah. And he'd started taking night classes at the most prestigious art school in Mexico, the San Carlos Academy, at the age of 10. In 1902, he left, finding it too restrictive, and in 1907 he went to Europe, and Mm -hmm. while in Europe he settled in Paris. He made friends with Picasso, with Gertrude Stein, Sergei Diaghilev, and he returned to Mexico eventually in 1921. Diego was a prolific and obsessive painter. He sometimes wouldn't leave the scaffold for days at a time. He would eat and sleep up there once he fell asleep at the scaffold and fell off. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. When you say scaffold... Diego's chosen medium is murals so his painting is like huge paintings i wonder how much that's influenced by having a blackboard covered room as a child that's an interesting thought that i had <laughs> not considered to be honest <laughs> Diego was one of the greats of the contemporary muralist movement at the time. The movement had been initiated by Jose Vasconcelos, who was the then Minister for Education, and in the early 1920s, the walls of many civil buildings in Mexico were painted with large-scale government-commissioned murals. Diego was very, very passionate about art. He said, I'm not merely an artist, but a man performing his biological function of producing paintings, just as a tree produces flowers and fruits. And he wanted to make art that was enjoyable and accessible to the masses, understanding high intellectual forms of art as being essentially aristocratic. Okay. His work was characterized by specifically Mexican imagery featuring the Mexican landscape, folklore, and indigenous peoples, and he was interested in art from indigenous and peasant communities in particular. Government support for the mural movement began to wane during the 1923 to 1924 presidential campaign, as politicians distanced themselves from the communist philosophies that a lot of the muralists promoted. Mm. So initially, 18 muralists had received commissions, but after the election, only Diego continued to receive a commission which he retained until 1927. Okay. Despite this, the value and content of his work was increasingly debated, (laughs) and the relationship of muralism both to the government and to Mexican communist organizations was complicated, to say the least. So at the same time as muralism was being viewed as too radical to be supported by the state, Diego's work was seen as too bourgeois by the Mexican Communist Party, and he was expelled from the Mexican (laughs) Communist Party in 1929. Simply for doing painting that was too bourgeois? For various effects. Some that were like pretty minor, like he was late a lot uh, (laughs) and he had friends from like other leftist organizations that weren't like this particular brand of communism and things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But also, you know, yes, he took commissions from the government. Yeah. Yeah. So he came to a meeting in 1929 of the Communist Party and said, I, Diego Rivera, general secretary of the Mexican Communist Party, accuse the painter Diego Rivera of collaborating with the petite bourgeois government of Mexico. This contradicts the politics of the Comintern and therefore the painter Diego Rivera should be expelled from the Communist Party by the 
the general secretary of the Communist Party, Diego Rivera, and so he left. He kicked himself out because he was going to be kicked out? I, I don't know exactly how this played out. He didn't have a choice. I know oh, that. Okay. And I don't know how much this was him getting in ahead of time and how much this was him being kicked out of that meeting and then just having a mic drop moment at the end yeah. and then leaving. But I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Wait, was he the general secretary? Yes. And then he just was yeah. exp- Okay. Yes. Okay. I don't think it's, like, hard to get expelled from the Communist no, Party. No, I don't think so. But, like, that seems like a significant position in the party, right? Yes. Okay. He is a significant communist figure in Mexico. And then they're like, no, you're taking money from the government and yeah. not get out, Diego. Okay. Yep. <laughs> all right, all right. On a more personal note, Diego also had a big reputation for womanizing. He'd left an illegitimate daughter behind when he left Paris, and back in Mexico, he had married Lupe Marin, but the marriage had dissolved by 1928. According to Lupe, this was due to his affair with Tina Madotti, and that was not the first affair she was aware of. But in any case, they divorced, and after that, Diego goes on this like long series of rapid affairs and it's during this like long series of quick affairs that Frida meets Diego. One more thing before I start talking about that meeting is it should be noted that Diego was a liar. Uh, Not in the way that Frida was a liar where like "Eh, kind of not really like Diego was a liar. Okay. Um, Diego's biographer Bertram Wolf said, The tall tales for which Diego was famous, improvised effortlessly as a spider spins his web, their pattern changing with each retelling, were fables wrapped in fables, woven so skillfully out of truth and fantasy that one thread could not be distinguished from the other told with such artistry that they compelled the momentary suspension of disbelief. There are a lot of sort of quotes attesting to the fact that Diego would just kind of talk, oh, yeah. if you get what I mean, yeah. and like the truth really wasn't that consequential when he was trying to tell a story. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. That brings us to the fact that there are multiple accounts of how Frida met Diego, multiple versions told by Diego, and I believe multiple versions told by Frida. All right. Okay. So okay. anything could have happened. Anything could have happened. So... Version one. All right, let's go. <laughs> While Frida was a student at the preparatory school, Diego painted a mural in the auditorium. Diego's biographer reports that Frida took an interest in him, watching him paint and also pranking him several times by stealing his lunch and soaping the stairs in the auditorium in the hope that he would fall. <laughs> Herrera treats this as a fact. Mm-hmm. Other biographers refer to it as part of Frida's legend. Mm-hmm. Make of that what you will. So I assume he did, in fact, paint a mural in the school. He like, did that's paint a mural pr- in the school, yes. Okay. So and he she- presumably would have seen it and then like what she happened would have that, been aware knows? of it yeah beyond that that could have been made up after the time that they got together yeah or it could have happened okay the most famous version of how they met goes that in 1928 when she had recovered from her first relapse frida went to see diego when he was painting a mural so she could get an honest opinion of her paintings mm-hmm. the story goes that she called him down from his scaffold and said look i've not come to flirt or anything i've come to show you my paintings If you're interested in it, tell me so. If not, likewise, so that I'll go to work at something else to help my parents. And he came and he looked at her paintings and found that she had enormous talent and encouraged her to keep painting. Okay. This is, I find, the kind of like general version biographers Mm -hmm. go with. Herrera uh, uncharacteristically questions this <laughs> and doesn't think it's true. She instead believes that Frida and Diego probably met for the first time at a party at Tina Madotti's house. In 1954, Frida remembered once at a party given by Tina, 
Diego shot a phonograph and I began to be very interested in him in spite of the fear I had of him. I mean, it seems likely then that they had a few like brief meetings before they actually got to know each other. Yeah. I mean, like all of these could be true. Yeah. Yeah. Like she could have been like, oh yeah, I saw this guy when I was at school. Oh, I'll go and ask him for some advice about painting. Oh, okay. Now we're at a party together and I kind of get to know each other personally. Yeah. Like, like those don't actually conflict. But in any case, they do meet. They certainly did <laughs> meet. Confirmed. And Frida and Diego begin courting. He would visit her in Coyoacan and she would watch him paint and this courtship obviously goes well because Frida and Diego get engaged. So you mentioned Diego having like a series of affairs and now yeah. you're using the word courting and like is this very different to relationships he's had previously? Well they're not like sleeping together okay. I think. I don't know like he's you know they're hanging out okay. they're getting close they're flirting. Yeah. I guess yeah. probably people just call it courting because they end up getting married and that seems like an appropriate <laughs> word, but you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I guess obviously they do end up getting married, which sets it apart from if you've yeah. had a bunch of affairs that do not end um, in marriage in I, the preceding time. Yeah, I say they're not sleeping together. I actually, like, don't know that, to be clear. I have no quote of Frida being like, I waited until our wedding night. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I just mean to say Diego has, like, a series of, like, brief affairs that are essentially, like, sexual relationships, oh, yeah. often with, like, women who who are modeling for him and things like that mm-hmm. and they're clearly not ones that he really cares about oh, at all yeah. whereas this is like they're establishing some kind of emotional connection so they may be it's, sleeping together but yeah. that's not that's the, not the point yeah. yeah yeah many of her friends were very shocked that she would marry someone so much older and also someone that they viewed as ugly um mm-hmm. so okay. diego was not conventionally attractive was Freda conventionally attractive like more so. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what conventionally attractive looked like in Mexico in 1925 I or whatever. I think Frida is like perfectly fine looking by the standard of right. time. Okay. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Yeah. When I did see her described as being like beautiful, it was often in regard to like the sort of image she created, as we'll discuss in a bit with her very characteristic style of dress and things like that. Yeah, okay. As opposed to just like her bone structure or whatever. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, you know, like Frida certainly isn't like markedly ugly or anything though. Her father approved the proposal, possibly because Diego was rich and therefore could handle Frida's ongoing medical bills. Shortly after they married, Diego paid the mortgage on the college house. Oh. So, you know, he was like... He was rich. Rich. All right. Frida's mother didn't approve. However, she begged Alejandro to try and stop the marriage, but he couldn't. Yeah. Frida's not going out with Alejandro anymore. Yeah. So... You can't just be like, oh, sure, I'll stop my ex getting married. I have that power. (laughs) You don't have that power. No. And on August 21st, 1929, they got married. They had a simple service at the town hall, and afterwards they had a party. Diego went on a drunken rampage, broke a man's finger, waved a gun around, and had a fight with Frida... She went home crying and he came to get her a few days later. Well, so not an ideal start. No. No. <laughs> was this in character for him? And would yes. she have known that this was in character for him? Do you remember how I said that once at a party, Diego shot a phonograph and she was really interested in Oh, that? I didn't pause shot a phonograph as literally. F- I don't oh, know what yeah, I thought okay, that meant. Sorry. But- <laughs> to be clear, Diego had a gun and would shoot it for fun sometimes. This isn't that weird at the time. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. It contemporary Mexico it seems pretty normal to carry a gun yeah. and shoot it at things but you know like it's certainly a normal part of his behavior okay okay so I wanted to talk a bit about Diego and Frida's relationship because obviously it's quite intense and it's yep. very central to her life and it's going to last in some form or another until her death so as indicated by the scene at their wedding it was often quite a troubled relationship this is often summed up by Frida's famous quote I've suffered two grave accidents in my life one when a streetcar knocked me down the other accident is Diego well okay 
Yeah. That's quite a thing to say. Diego was continuously and unapologetically unfaithful to Frida, and he was very much aware of the effect that his mistreatment had on her, saying in his autobiography, if I loved a woman, the more I loved her, the more I wanted to hurt her. Frida was only the most obvious victim of this disgusting trait. That's not okay, Diego, and maybe you should like see someone about that. Yeah, like Diego is a self-centered and misogynistic man. Which yeah. is like, stick to having casual sex, mate. Yeah, don't get married if that's yeah. how you're gonna be. Yeah. Also like, you know, Frida is an adult but given the age gap as well as Diego's status as a famous and wealthy man mm. with an established yeah. career, we should note that there is a marked power imbalance yeah. in this relationship. Yeah. And, and she's also in quite a vulnerable position then if she needs like somebody to pay medical bills yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And like this is sort of one of those situations where as she grows older, that power imbalance clearly lessens to a degree. Yeah. But yeah. there are elements of that that never go away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in particular, like his affairs are something that he can get away with because of the social norms at the time. Like this isn't a secret. Yeah. Whereas yeah. she can't yeah. when she begins to have her own affairs. Yeah. It's not like they can just negotiate to be in an open relationship and have that just be a fine thing socially. However, the relationship was also a genuine, passionate and loving one. It was deeply important to both of them. And Frida loved Diego very much. Maintaining this relationship was a priority to her. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so like Diego's a bad man, but I kind of don't want us to just dismiss him as a bad man because I think that in order to kind of understand Frida, we need to understand that this is important is important to her yeah yeah diego very much respected frida's opinions as an artist he encouraged her in developing her own art style and he would change things in his paintings based on her criticism okay as frida spent an increasing amount of time in hospital later in her life he would sometimes not be very attentive but other times he would stay you know very devoted by her bedside day and night visitors would come into the room and find him doing things like dancing like a bear and playing a tambourine to make her smile and <laughs> An anecdote that I really liked was once when Diego and a friend were trying to find Frida in a crowd outside a movie theater and they couldn't. Diego whistled the first bar of the International and Frida heard it and whistled the second one and they kept doing that until they found each other. Which, you know, is obviously like a minor thing in terms of a relationship, but I think it indicates that they are very much kind of like on the same level and Mm. are often very like playful and really enjoy each other. Yeah. Their relationship had a quite like weird and intense quality to it. I don't say that with judgment. It's just an unusual relationship. So Frida painted herself holding a baby Diego in her arms and Diego likewise painted himself as a small boy holding an adult Frida's hand. That's interesting considering the power imbalance that like Mm. you discussed one minute ago. She would also scold him for like leaving his things on the ground in the house and she would bathe him and like buy him bath toys and things like that. (laughs) And I guess I wanted to note that this kind of dynamic of like a man having a wife who he effectively can look to as being like a mother but someone he's sleeping with isn't just like that unusual of a dynamic really and isn't entirely wholesome. I think most of what's making it unusual here is just that they seem so overt about it. They're like painting paintings depicting that. Yeah, and like the bath toys, for example. Yeah, yeah. it's, It's a very gendered dynamic but also they seem to really enjoy that type of sort of like play. There were various anecdotes from friends where they mentioned that like, you know, Frida would be like scolding Diego the way you would a child. And he was like making a great show of like hanging his head and being apologetic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, if you're having fun, I guess. Like, yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I think it does look different if the like wife as mother situation isn't just Diego letting Frida 
to do all the housework. It's like, I mean, he is. Uh, yeah, but it's also <laughs> got that element of like Frida scolding him to pick up his things yeah. and things like that. It's yeah. it's more than something they've just kind of fallen into. Mm. Yeah, especially in the early years of their marriage, scholars really depict Frida as being like dedicated to Diego's needs and kind of like solely interested in her role as a housewife, of that mm-hmm. being kind of like the defining core of her life. So Robin Richmond, for example, talks about Frida focusing on being his decorative consort and learning how to cook. And this is like true to an extent and regarding both Alejandro and Diego, Frida in like letters and such would express a desire to kind of remake herself for them and to be whatever they wanted her to be in order to <laughs> keep them. However, her relationship to these gender norms were quite ambivalent. Frida already has a history of resisting expectations on her as like a middle-class Mexican woman. Mm. She'd been one of 35 women enrolled at the National Preparatory School. She had plans to enter medical school. She'd been involved in sports. She had been sexually active with her boyfriend, which was not acceptable at the time. You know, she was politically engaged. All of these things indicate ways in which she doesn't conform to Mm. the model of what she's expected to be. And her biographers sometimes depict it as like Frida plays the good wife when she's young and then increasingly defies social norms as she grows older and more Mm -hmm. like independent and confident. And like, that's a kind of reasonable course to understand her going on in her life. But I think it's important to note that in her early life she was already rebelling against gender norms and in her later life she was still influenced by them. Oh yeah. 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 I was watching a documentary the other day about like the feminist movement in the 70s and one of the women in that documentary was saying like she started out in I think it was the Labour Party like the Labour Youth Party or whatever it was and she was like yep as women we talked about like not doing all these gendered things Mm. and we were really politically Mm. active but then when the meetings came we brought all the food and we washed all the teacups Mm -hmm. and like I think I've heard a lot of Stories yeah. to that effect. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, and it's not really the, a dichotomy of like you're rebelling against gender norms, mm. therefore you're able to just completely free yourself from all of them. Yeah, yeah, and I think there was kind of a reluctance to really either analyze this in depth or to allow Freya to be complicated. Yeah. There's kind of either this desire to pigeonhole her as just being like a completely conventional woman and therefore, you know, not being Mm. like all that radical or there was a desire to understand her as really radical and therefore her potential ways in which she did conform to socially expected gender roles couldn't be talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While we're talking about gender dynamics, there were some further interesting dynamics within their relationship. Frida really enjoyed Diego's appearance. She described Describes him saying, seeing him nude, you immediately think of a boy frog standing on his hind legs. <laughs> That's not the way someone would traditionally describe their attractive partner. His skin is greenish white, like that of an aquatic animal. His infantile shoulders, narrow and round, flow without angles into feminine arms that end in marvelous hands, small and delicate in design. Elsewhere, she said, of his chest, it must be said that if he had disembarked on the island governed by Sappho, he would not have been executed by the female warriors. <laughs> The sensitivity of his marvellous breasts would have made him admissible. So she's specifically into his body in a way in which she's seeing it as a feminine body. Yeah, she understands it as feminine. I also just really like, like, because people are so gross about how Diego was fat, that, like, that's specifically something that Frida was into. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. Regarding his body. I just thought it was nice. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this goes both ways as well. Like Diego also enjoyed Frida's more masculine traits. He was really into her mustache. And when Diego and Frida met, Frida dressed quite masculine in general. So she wore like a black or red like collared shirt and a hammer and sickle pin, like blue jeans, leather jacket. That was her look. <laughs> That's a good look. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's um, so different to the look that we like generally yeah. see of Frida in her like traditional like Mexican dress and flowers and stuff. Yeah. And like yeah. this is the Frida that Diego falls in love with. Yeah. 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 And he actually painted her as one of the figures in his mural Ballad of the Proletarian Revolution, in which she's depicted in that kind of clothing. And she's mm-hmm. like handing out bayonets to <laughs> soldiers, revolutionaries, yeah. whatever. Yeah. However, you know, you mentioned Frida's like typical style of dress that we picture her in. And it is during the early days of her relationship with Diego that Frida adopts a style of dress. So this style of dress consists of like embroidered blouses and like, long skirts. She'll often have a shawl and all of this are in often quite bright colors. Mm-hmm. The specific style of dress she adopted was that of the indigenous women of Tehuantepec, who were understood to have maintained their traditional matriarchal social structure. So this was a very rich symbol for post-revolutionary Mexican women. It represented a society that had escaped European dominance and remained like a pure and uncorrupted Mexican society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, like, obviously the matriarchal social structure lent itself to yeah, a feminist connection. Yeah. So it became fashionable for women to wear Tawana clothing, and there were a lot of women doing this at the time, but Frida maintained it long after it generally went out of fashion. Oh, yeah. It became something that obviously today is very iconic to her. Mm-hmm. Do we know anything about how, like, the people of Tawantepec felt about their, like, traditional clothing being appropriated into that movement? Were they involved in that, or was that something that just kind of happened to them that they became a symbol for, like, post-revolutionary Mexican feminism? Like. So I do want to get a little bit more into kind of analyzing and critiquing Frida's politics in the second episode. Okay. Which I realize is like kind of awkward that I've just brought this up now, but I'm not no, going to say okay. anything about That's it. Okay, yet. I'm happy to wait. Um, but I will say, like, for the most part, this wasn't represented as something that was particularly problematic, but also I didn't see really many scholars thinking about that angle of it. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it wasn't something that I easily came across information about. I'm sure there is information more in depth about it out there. But like, I do know that the type of Mexican nationalism that Frida's involved in is one example of a lot of different competing strains of nationalism going around that all had their own approach to Mexico's indigenous people. And some of these were more problematic than others. Okay, Um, There were sort of like general issues where these communities would be used as a symbol, but like there wasn't enough being done to address actual socio-political issues that face them and things like that. And I do feel like, although this is so far out of my wheelhouse that I'm not going to like condemn or say it's okay, I do feel like there is a fine line between like appropriation and reasonable cultural exchange going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's sort of why I was curious, like where it sort of fell on that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, I will talk about this a bit more in depth next episode, but I think also that understanding of them being like a pure and uncorrupted version of Mexico, obviously yeah. is a problematic understanding of a people. Like it really opens up the door to like infantile or like treat as a kind of like noble savage archetype this yeah. other people for your own political ends and like I again didn't really see any critique of this but like I feel that Frida engages in that to some degree okay I know yeah. when we did our episode a very long time ago on mochi pots in Peru, and in Peru they had a similar movement mm-hmm. of like building a national identity yeah. around indigenous peoples, that a lot of the pots depicting sex, which was considered inappropriate, 
were destroyed during that movement because they didn't fit this image of Mm. the pure Mm. people that they were trying to construct their identity from. And I assume that similar things would have happened in Mexico where they're only willing to acknowledge the parts of Indigenous identity that suit Mm. the national identity they want to create. Yeah. Yeah. Over the course of the 1920s, the Mexican political climate moved more towards the right. And as a consequence, muralism fell increasingly out of favour. Many muralists moved to the United States, and in November of 1930, Frida and Diego followed suit and moved to San Francisco. Oh, I had literally no idea that Frida lived in the United States. She did, yeah. So Diego had commissions lined up from the San Francisco Stock Exchange and the California School of Fine Arts. And <laughs> I see. It's he, pretty bourgeois. <laughs> so bourgeois. It's quite a thing to be like, oh, like, you know, my country's moving to the right, so I can't get these jobs I used to get before because I'm quite a left-wing, like a communist person. Yeah. I'm going to work for this stock exchange in America. Yeah. Yeah, Diego's politics are really weird, and I didn't want to talk about them too much because this episode's about Frida. But yeah, like, you know, yep. (laughs) That is a contradiction. I could tell you more, but it wouldn't clear that up. It would just elaborate on that contradiction, to be honest. Diego really liked America. He thrived there. In addition to painting, he gave lectures, he was interviewed for the paper, he went to parties, dinners, receptions, and so forth. Diego liked America in part because he believed that America was ripe for revolution, and he was excited to help by bringing Mm -hmm. art to people as propaganda. Okay, okay. See, that part seems coherent. Yeah. Yeah. Frida, on the other hand, did not like America. She was very enraged by the gap between the rich and the poor, and she thought that Americans lacked sensibility and good taste. (laughs) In a letter to a friend, she wrote, I don't particularly like the gringo people. They're boring, and they all have faces like unbaked rolls. (laughs) Which I thought was pretty good. Frida was often dismissed by the particular, like, American social circles they were moving in as just being Diego's pretty young wife, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. She wasn't taken particularly seriously, and she didn't initially make close friendships. An exception to this is Dr. Leo Elisir, who was a famous surgeon specializing in bone surgery, and who had become Frida's most trusted doctor and a friend throughout her life. So they lived in San Francisco for uh, seven months until June of 1931, and then they briefly went back to Mexico before again moving to the U.S., because Diego received commissions in Detroit and New York. Uh The situation in Detroit, where they went first, was much the same as in San Francisco. Diego was very invigorated by American industry and the revolutionary potential of the working class in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and Frida hated it. Uh, She didn't like the way she was treated by Americans, and in particular, she didn't like Henry Ford, who was financing the murals, (laughs) and who Diego just hung out with for some reason. Okay, okay. (laughs) When Frida came to Detroit, she was already a couple of months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And on July 4th, 1932, Frida had a miscarriage. Okay. Fellow artist Lucien Bloch, who was staying with the couple at the time, wrote a a diary entry the following day about the events of that night, which is one of our key sources for this incident. She wrote, In the night I heard the worst cries of despair. At five, Diego rushed into the room, all disheveled and pale, and asked me to call the doctor. Frida was taken to Henry Ford Hospital in an ambulance where she remained for 13 days. The miscarriage is generally attributed to issues stemming from her accident and Mm -hmm. Frida would never have children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While in the hospital, Frida asked for a medical textbook so she could draw the fetus and Diego provided it to her when her doctors refused. The same month, she painted Henry Ford Hospital. In the painting, Frida lies on a hospital gurney, bleeding and crying, holding six red ribbons that are reminiscent of veins. They lead to six objects floating in the space around her, an anatomical model of a torso, a fetus, 
necklace, a snail, a pelvis, a wilted flower, and a piece of machinery. This painting is a step in the development of Frida's use of the surreal and in her depiction of pain, both of which come to be hallmarks of her work. This painting is generally understood as an expression of her grief over the miscarriage specifically and of not being able to have a child in general. Hmm. Looking at the evidence of Lucien's letter and looking at the painting, this is clearly a reasonable understanding to a degree. There are other quotes from Frida that support that she desired to have a child, such as the following quote from an interview from 1984 in the newspaper Excelsior. She said, We could not have a child, and I cried inconsolably, but I distracted myself by cooking, dusting the house, sometimes by painting, and every day accompanying Diego to the scaffold. Herrera views Frida's desire to be a mother as one of, if not the key drive in Frida's life, and she finds evidence of this everywhere. I'm just going to list off some things that Herrera thinks are signs of Frida desire to have a child now. I'm okay. concerned already. <laughs> I so, found some uh, sexism about to be at work. Among the decorations in her bedroom in Casa Azul were many dolls and a fetus in a jar, which was given to her by Dr. Elisir. That is a weird thing to have in your bedroom, to be fair. Like in her childhood bedroom or as an adult? As an adult. Okay. Frida loved her niece and nephew, so her sister Christina's children, and she lavished attention on them. She had many pets and plants, which she tended like needy infants. That's a quote from Herrera. She painted fruit and flowers, which is evidence of her obsession with fertility. She painted what? barren landscapes, evidence of her feelings about her own barrenness. And of course, any depiction of a child on her paintings, whether it's herself, whatever the context, is a sign of her longing for motherhood. I feel like some of these things like do link to somebody wanting kids, like loving your niece and nephew for example but I some of them yeah like, like maybe I know a lot of people who are like I love being an aunt I would never do it myself yeah mm. I mean that's also true but like painting fruit like and ditto having flowers and pets right yeah I know so many people who were like this is enough for me I don't want to have children yeah and there are also people who are like we got a dog to see how we'd go with a responsibility before we had a baby like yeah, it that doesn't go away the tell way. you anything. Wanting to care for mm. a plant doesn't tell you anything except that this person wants to care for a plant. Yeah. Despite all of that compelling evidence, it is clear <laughs> that Frida's feelings about the pregnancy are not clear-cut. So Frida had seen a Dr. Pratt in Detroit, and she told him that due to her health, she thought that it would be best if she had an abortion. He gave her an abortifacient, and she took it, but he confirmed after that that she was still pregnant and told mm. her that it would be better for her health if she kept the baby and that she would be able to safely deliver it by a caesarean. Oh, okay. In May of 1932, she wrote to Dr. Elliser seeking his opinion on this, on whether she could safely carry a child to term. She then lists the reasons why she thinks that it would be bad to have a child, listing her health, logistical reasons that would be complicated to manage pregnancy, birth, and a newborn in Detroit, and that she didn't think that Diego would want a child. I will also note that this wasn't Frida's first pregnancy. In 1930, when she was three months pregnant, she had had an abortion because the fetus wasn't in the right place and I understand therefore was not viable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll read you a quote from this letter now. She said, from my point of view, I do not know whether it would be good or not to have a child since Diego is continually traveling and for no reasons would I want to leave him alone and stay behind in Mexico. There would only be difficulties and problems for both of us, don't you think? But if like Dr. Pratt, you really think that it's much better for my health not to abort and to have the baby, all these difficulties can be overlooked. So overall to me from that letter, it seems that her health is her major concern 
Mm -hmm. Um, And she notably talks very little about the child as a child, you know, about like a child. This isn't to say that she didn't grieve when she did miscarry. And of course, the fact that she tried to abort the pregnancy doesn't make her grief less genuine or legitimate. Any emotional response to a miscarriage or an abortion are legitimate. I want to make the point that it seems that Frida's feelings about children and her infertility were complicated and rather more ambivalent than Herrera and other biographers are willing to let it be. I think it's just as likely that Frida's grief over this miscarriage were in part due to her coming to terms with her lack of agency over her fertility Mm -hmm. and over her own body due to the effects of the accident. And it's also worth noting that motherhood was an integral part of Frida's expected social role in contemporary Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. And this has to be kept in mind when we consider her feelings on the matter, as well as the context of quotes like the one from the newspaper above where she talks about being desperate for a child. And like we have already seen in other capacities how Frida tries to conform in mm. some ways to her expected social role as a wife. Yeah. Like how she looks after Diego and you were saying in America especially she's really just seen as like his wife and how, you know, obviously that didn't sit right with her always but in some other capacities it seems like she was just like yep, yeah, this is what I do. It also like especially for something so significant and life-changing as like having an infant. It's not that difficult to understand that somebody could both want it and not want it, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Like, yeah, like she's obviously conflicted about that. So, yeah, like I, I think those aren't difficult things to argue, but the through line of Frida being desperate for children and a lot of her experiences being shaped by the fact she couldn't have one is such a prominent thing in the biographies that I just wanted mm-hmm. to like address that in some depth. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's something you see a lot when people are talking about like or like sort of analyzing significant women artists that people just kind of want to read them as mother figures to everything mm. to like mm. everyone and what examples are you thinking like of? i'm feeling and it's much more clear when you think about people like audrey lord because audrey lord very much like personally identified as a mother yeah but i do think it's something you see a lot with those kind of figures who have a sort of like nationalist angle as well Oh, or things yeah. like that. Or like mm. for Audre Lorde, it was like a civil rights sort of mm-hmm. perspective where people will kind of want to take women activists or like women nationalists on as like mother figures too. Yeah. 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 And it becomes important to kind of frame them as somebody who wants to mother. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it certainly was a thing at the time, like with the rise of nationalism, that there was a stress on the family. Mm-hmm. Frida and Diego left Detroit in March for New York, where Diego had a commission to paint a mural in the Rockefeller Center. So more capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Frida liked New York better than Detroit. She did have some friends there. Lucien mentions going to see and I just had to mention this, it's like apropos of nothing, uh, performance of some of Tchaikovsky's music with her. Okay. Um, and Frida hated classical music. <laughs> and Lucien wrote how they, quote, acted like the worst mischiefs, making drawings and paper birds and giggling awfully, this in Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. The mural was opposite the main entrance to the RCA building in Rockefeller Center. So it's in this like very prominent location. And it's also overtly communist in theme. <laughs> okay. Nice work, Diego. As the New York press became aware of this, the climate towards this became increasingly hostile. Diego's scaffold was replaced with a flimsier one overnight. Oh, wow. Yeah, like hostile. And the numbers of guards increased. So like guards that 
the like Rockefellers, I guess, were hiring, yeah. not Diego's guards. And so like one of them threatened, like physically threatened one of Diego's assistants when the assistant tried to like take a photograph of the mural. So I assume the Rockefellers like approved this yeah, mural. So had they, they like seen they did. Draft. There is like kind of a weird, as we've alluded to, thing going on mm. here where all these capitalists want these murals painted by this like prominent Mexican communist figure. And I think there's different things that are going on depending on the particular mural. You know, sometimes it's a kind of like we're presenting ourselves as very, you know, more like sort of left wing and socially tolerant than we really are. Yeah, so like, like a lot of this sends out an International Women's Day email. Yeah, yeah. it is like that. Yeah. Because a lot of these aren't, you know, like hammer and sickles. They're just kind of like the workers and oh, stuff like yeah, that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, we love you guys. We yeah. value our employees. So, you know, I suppose that that is likely what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's also just possible that like they were like, yeah, that seems good. And then when the public started to be against it, they were like, oh, oh no, yeah. we don't, we, we were never in favor of this but in any case they told him to like tone it down Diego responded by painting a portrait of Lenin into the mural (laughs) and Rockefeller fired him (laughs) the mural was chipped off the wall oh that's so disappointing it is that's extremely funny I I support this I support support it too what if we went and graffitied the Rockefellers end with a picture of Lenin that'd be pretty in honor of this mural yeah if you're in if you're in New York I will bail you out I'll send you the bail money yeah (laughs) After this, Frida and Diego remained in New York. Diego did a few more paintings for, like, communist organizations, okay. just in their, like, lobbies and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Diego still really liked America. He still thought that the next big revolution could come here. He really thought that it would come from an industrialized country, and he thought that it would be America. Imagine what if that had happened. A imagine, world. That would have been very interesting. <laughs> Frida, however, wanted to return to Mexico. You know, that was home to her. That's where her, like, social circles were. Mm, and she yeah. was very lonely in America. The relationship became intense and occasionally explosive over the issue. Once, when gesturing at a painting of Mexico, Diego told Frida that he didn't want to go back to that, and then he shredded the painting with a knife. Wow, okay. Yeah. But in the end, they do decide that they're going to go back to Mexico, and on December 20th, 1933, they boarded a boat back home. So that's where we're going to leave it today. We'll continue with the rest of Frida's life in our next episode, but for now, with that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts in particular, we would appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a rating out of five stars. It really helps us to find a wider audience. If you are not on Apple Podcasts or just don't want to do that, we would really appreciate it if you would consider giving us a shout out to someone that you know in the real world. If you would like to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also post us letters and you can find our P.O. Box address on our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you would like to support us financially, we have a Redbubble where you can buy merch with our logo on it. And we also have a Patreon where you can give us a small dollar amount once a month. Among the perks you'll get are getting to vote on topics and maybe after like a year we'll actually do them. To be clear, we're usually more efficient than Yeah, that. to be clear, yeah. every other time it's been the next episode. <laughs> we respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, 
and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be back next week on the 22nd of March for a change uh, when we'll again be talking to you about Frida Kahlo. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.